you got a Bible, go ahead and turn to uh, Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. Um, as I've kind of prepped you guys in the, in the past month, we're going to start working through the book of Matthew. Um, I guess you could say we started several weeks ago with, with talking through the birth of Jesus and stuff, but we're going to pick up in, in chapter 3 today and just go straight through it. Um, and so I'm going to read today Matthew chapter 3. Verses 1 through 6, and I plan on getting through six verses today, but we may not, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, it'll be up on the screen if you don't have a Bible. It says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for its uh, authority over us, its power to, uh, to convict us. Um, I pray that your spirit would come now and, and speak um, and do what, what I can't do, and that's just change hearts and lives. And so I ask that you would do that now, uh, begin to um, open blind eyes, open deaf ears, open and transform hard hearts to see you and love you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So did everybody have a good Christmas? I forgot to ask. You guys have a good Christmas? Yeah. Christmas is always fun. Well, it's over now. All that preparation. This is this is funny to me. All the preparation, the money spent, secrecy, wrapping presents and getting them under the tree before anybody sees them, worrying, I hope I got them the right thing, you know, because a gift card just won't do. I got to get them the right thing. So we're worrying. I hope they like it. If they don't like it, I'm heartbroken. We just worry. We plan. We decorate our houses. We put up a tree. We decorate the tree all for one day. And then it's done. December 26th and it's over. It's completely and all that stuff is over. Now I made the mistake of going to Walmart on December 26th, the day after Christmas. And uh, the, Christ, the aisles for the Christmas decorations were swarmed with people. The day after Christmas, because as you know, the Christmas stuff goes on sale. And so all these people are going crazy buying this stuff on sale to prepare for next year's Christmas already. They're already thinking, I'm gonna need, I might as well go ahead and get them while they're cheap because they're on sale. So they're, they're already living out in their minds the hope that next year Christmas is going to come just like it's always came. And I'm going to decorate just like I've always decorated. I'm going to be alive next year. My family is going to be alive. We're not going to be in concentration camps. My house is not going to be burned down. Everything is just going to keep going exactly like it's always went. And so we, we take advantage of the fact that Christmas came this year by beginning to plan for Christmas next year. Now, this is not, it's not a bad thing. I envy people who can plan a year ahead. I don't plan a year ahead for anything. So I, I envy that. I, I was in, actually in line behind a lady um, who, who had two shopping carts full of Christmas decorations for herself. And Christmas is over. And I'm thinking, Christmas is over. She's going to have to take all this stuff home and find a place to put it in her house for 364 days or however. You know, these, she probably starts decorating in September, but 
but we just do this. It's not a bad thing, but we just assume that life is going to go on without a hitch and everything is just going to be completely normal. Now, several weeks ago, we talked about hope and we talked about how the the children of Israel had this very rich, God-soaked history and then all of a sudden, there were 400 years of silence that God just, just stopped speaking. So, they were God's chosen people, given the law, the promises, the promised land, the patriarchs. Um, they were continuously rebellious, and, and so they were taken into captivity. Because God said, if you rebel, I'm going to take all this stuff away, and they always were. And so they were taken into captivity. After a time in captivity, a remnant was able to leave and go back to Jerusalem, rebuild the city walls and the temple. And during this time... We, we read about or we read from a few what we call post-exilic prophets or prophets that prophesied after the exile. And their prophecies were mostly rebukes and warnings. If you keep living this way, God's going to do this. God's going to do that. Your enemies, he's going to get them too. But there were still some promises of redemption and restoration. And, and so they're thinking it's coming. We're going to be restored. The people of God are going to be where they're supposed to be. And then boom, God stops talking. Malachi prophesies and that's it. No more. No more no more prophecies, no more speaking. So Israel had simply gone about their business like they had always done. Yes, God's gave us the law, we know the rules, we're doing the sacrifices, we're doing the religious thing, we're doing our duty in the temple, we're going to rebel and God's going to get mad and he'll kill a few people and then he'll come back and he'll love us because we'll turn back him and they just kept this this cycle. If you read the Old Testament, it's insane. Because in one story you see these people rebel, the ground opens up and swallows a, a bunch of people, closes back up, and then everybody's like, we love you, God. And then two verses later, the people's hearts wandered and they rebelled and they murmured against Moses. It's really funny, but they just continue their lives like there's always going to be this open line of communication between us and Yahweh, our God. We're going to rebel, we'll do some things, but He loves us, He's abounding in steadfast love, and so we're just going to keep doing it. And so they just assumed... That everything was just going to keep on going. And then all of a sudden it just stopped. And God was silent. There were no doubt um, those of the children of Israel who thought God made all those promises and they failed. He made us all. He said we were going to be restored. He said we were going to be redeemed. And he gave up. He quit. That God failed. He couldn't keep his promise. Now during that time of silence... 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Roman Empire comes and takes over the known world. And so the Jewish people, the Israelites, are once again back in uh, sub submissive, or submissive to another government. They're back under oppression and tyranny. And so during that time, there were probably those who thought, okay, well, the redemption that God's promised is going to come in the form of political rescue from the Romans. We will be... Uh, ousted from underneath the Romans and we will be put back to where we're supposed to be. But for 400 years, God didn't speak. He didn't say anything. There were no prophecies, no prophets, no promises. There weren't even harsh rebukes and condemnation like there had always been. It was just nothing. It was silence for 400 years. So today, I'm excited because we're going to get to read about the end of that silence. When God broke the silence and began to speak again and the ushering in of the one who would inaugurate the kingdom of God on earth. So I'm excited. I hope you guys are excited. I was trying to relate this. Last night I was thinking about 
you know, these things that are quiet and then they get loud or they pop and like a jack in the box or those little rubber things that you invert and you wait on them and there's this suspense. I remember when I was little, my dad, one of his hobbies has always been shooting guns. And so when I was little, we were always, always like, let's go outside and shoot. And for me, guns were just so loud. Like it was, I still have this thing about loud stuff. Like if something is absurdly loud, I'm just enthralled with it. And so he would give me some earplugs, which were, didn't help at all. And it would be his turn to shoot. And so I'll be standing behind him with my hands in my ears waiting. Now he, his patience with shooting is far beyond mine. I mean, I'm sitting down, boom, I missed. And he's like, no, you got to pay attention, slow down, take a deep breath. So his patience is, but I'll be standing behind him. It seemed like forever minutes. And he's just getting really still and calm. And I'm just like, I'm thinking, He's not going to shoot. He's not going to shoot. Maybe the safety's on. He's, he can't do it. Now, boom! He shoots. And it would just, it freaked me out every time. And this is how, this is kind of how I relate this for God's people. Because God had made all these promises. And then all of a sudden, he's quiet for 400 years. Generations passed. And then all of a sudden, the silence breaks. And there's this new guy on the scene named John the Baptist. Now, if you you see we're talking about John, we're not, we haven't even got to Jesus yet. We're, we're talking about John the Baptist today. And we're going to, like I said, we're going to begin working through Matthew's gospel or Matthew's account of the, the life of Jesus. Now, remember, Matthew is a Jew writing to Jews, and his main focus is to prove that Jesus was the promised Messiah. Because as we know still to this day, the majority of Jewish people don't accept Jesus as the Messiah. And so he's writing in this way. And it's going to be interesting to see how Matthew takes the things that Jesus said and he did. And he proves them using these things to to kind of back up his case that Jesus was in fact the Messiah of Israel. Now we've, like I said, we've already spent a lot of time talking about the birth narrative of Jesus and and the incarnation stuff. And so I'm going to skip the rest of chapter 2 and pick up in chapter 3 today. I hope you guys aren't offended. Um, Chapter 2 is there if you want to read it on your own time. But I really want to take this, this working through Matthew's gospel and really focus on the man Jesus. And so we're not going to go you know, super in detail. Um, we may skip some places, but I want to get to just Jesus and what's going on with him. But today, as you see, we're not even talking about Jesus yet. Um, John came with a particular purpose to fulfill. I think that purpose still stands as something that is, is relevant to us today. He came to prepare God's people for his Messiah. We're going to be looking at God's Messiah and the kingdom. And so we need to prepare ourselves. So That's why we're picking up in 3 with John and skipping over some of the birth narrative. So this guy, John, John the Baptist is who we're going to talk about. Verses 1 through 3, we've already read it, but I'll read it again. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now this is verse 3 and 4 is describing this John. This is all Matthew gives us about John. For this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So I've already said, because Matthew is a Jew writing to Jews, he's going to grab these Old Testament prophecies to kind of beef up his case. Because Jews knew Isaiah. I mean, it seems like every time they're, they're in the synagogue, they're reading Isaiah when you read through these Gospels. And so they knew Isaiah. They knew what he had said. They knew the prophecies. If you were a religious person, you probably had it memorized. And so when he says, John the Baptist came, and oh yeah, remember in, the, in Isaiah when he said this, this is the same John. He's beefing up his case as to this John being the one who would prepare the way for the Messiah. So he's, he's just beefing this up. And it's very beneficial, I think, to, to his case. 
So John says that this, or, or Matthew says that John is fulfilling this prophecy in Isaiah 40. Now he only gives us a few lines, but I want to go back to Isaiah 40 and read um, six verses from this chapter to kind of build a context for this man that Matthew says fulfills this prophecy. And so Isaiah chapter 40 says this, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. This is what John preached. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill shall be made low, the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places made a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry! And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So this this is what Matthew is bringing to bear on John the Baptist. He's saying this, all this prophecy, John fits in here and this is his message. So we see that John comes with this message tied to Isaiah 40 and he's saying the glory of God is going to be revealed. The mouth of the Lord is going to speak the word of the Lord. The breath of God is going to lay to waste the people of the earth. That this word of our God that's coming is going to stand forever. This is what... Matthew is using to tie into John's message. And in verse 4, it describes how John came. Verse 4 says, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Now, if you first read this, you think, why do we care what John was wearing? Why why does it matter? In Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, which is one of the very last verses of prophecy we have in the Old Testament, it says, Behold... I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now obviously Elijah wasn't coming back to life. So this prophecy is metaphoric of Elijah. It's saying there's going to be a prophet a lot like Elijah coming in the same way Elijah came before the day of the Lord. This guy's going to show up. So the dress and the style, the things that John was wearing was almost exactly the same as what we're told how Elijah was. So he shows up like this old school, wilderness preaching, camel hair wearing prophet like Elijah. That's that's how this prophet comes. And he comes preaching, prepare the way of the Lord. So John comes preaching, basically, everybody get ready, the kingdom of heaven is coming. Prepare the way of the Lord. He's setting the stage for the coming of the kingdom of heaven. And he's speaking to Jews. So John comes to prepare the Jewish people for the coming of the kingdom of heaven. He comes to prepare God's people to see this revelation of the glory of God, as as it said in Isaiah. He's preparing God's people to see this word that the Lord has established that's going to stand forever. So, John had a particular message for his hearers. It was the same message that Jesus would preach. It was the same message that the disciples of Jesus preached. It's the same message the preachers of the word of God have preached for centuries Get ready. The day of the Lord is coming. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So now we've got this little idea of who John was. He's fulfilling this prophecy. He comes like Isaiah, old school prophet coming, and he's preaching. Get ready. Now I'll look a little bit more at his message because it says he came preaching. So he had a message or he had a sermon. John came preaching a sermon. He comes preaching a message that wasn't new 
This is not a new idea. See, a lot of times when we, especially people who are who are, have bought into dispensational theology, would say that God was different in the Old Testament than He is in the New Testament. But this is not a new concept for the people of God to repent and turn to God with their hearts. So it wasn't a new message, but it had new symbolism with it. So he, John, came to the Jews with a message, the same message that I bring you, and that is... Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Get ready. By God's grace, there is still time for your heart to be changed. And so John's sermon goes like this. Verse 2, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was his sermon. Now for me, to be a faithful expositor of God's word, and this is in scripture, so I basically need to exegete John's sermon. Luckily for me, it's only one line. And so that's what I'm going to do. So the first thing he says is repent. The first point of a sermon, you can imagine John preaching, he's got his PowerPoint, he's got his stuff, and he says, okay, point number one, repent. This is the first thing he says. So here comes John, this old test or this, this old school Elijah looking prophet wearing camel's hair, cricket legs in his teeth, screaming, repent. He's bringing this message to his people to repent. Now, for us to understand why this matters, we have to understand biblical repentance. We have to understand what he means when he says repent. Because I think a lot of times if you're like me, and I, I grew up in church, I should have known better, but our comprehension of the idea of repentance is usually off. And so I want to focus on this idea of repentance for a few minutes. The first thing that I want to do before we get into what repentance actually is, is establish what repentance is not. Because I would imagine there are more ideas in this room of, of repentance that are false than there are of what it actually is. And so, repentance is not feeling bad for doing something wrong. You might have heard somebody say, man, shouldn't have done that. That's not repentance. Anybody in, in, in the world, even those who are not born again believers in Jesus, can feel bad for doing something wrong. We're born with this natural morality in us. Everybody has it. So some people can, everybody will say, well, I should have done that or, or whatever. Everybody has this ingrained into us, especially if you're like me, if you've grown up in a religious background, you just know this is the line. This is what's right. This is wrong. I know what's wrong. And so if I do something wrong, man, I should have done that, you know, but that's not biblical repentance. Biblical repentance is not looking down on sinful actions of others, I should clarify. So, you may have heard someone say, I cannot believe they would act that way. Or, don't you know that that is an abomination unto the Lord? People say these things. But simply condemning sinful actions is not repentance or condemning people. If you'll remember... And we will see the religious guilt of Jesus' day. It was like a 40-hour work week for them to condemn other people's actions. And Jesus said, You're, you honor the Lord with your lips, but your hearts are far from Him. That was, that was not repentance. Repentance is not fear of shame from other people. Like sometimes we'll say, man, that's just gross. I would never do that because that's gross. See, there are a lot of people who don't commit sinful actions, not because they understand in their head, in their heart, that this is, that this is a, a horrific sin against an infinitely holy God, but rather it's just looked down on by other people, like homosexuality in the South. Man, I ain't gay. That's nasty. We use 
derogatory terms for homosexuals to put down one another because it's a joke, not because it's a sin. I'm not gay because I'm not attracted to men. See, you, you know how we do. We don't make it out to be, that's a sin against an infinitely holy God. It's not to be joked about. It's not funny. It's horrific. It's terrible. This is not repentance, just not sinning because it's looked down upon. Biblical repentance is not confession of sin. Maybe you've heard people say, I'll go ahead and tell you I'm a sinner. I struggle with this and this and this and this and this. Public or private confession of sin, although it is good and helpful, is not repentance. And it even gets easier for some people to confess a sin openly than it is to actually repent. I've had experiences with guys who they want you want this accountability partner relationship and so it's like hey man if you're struggling with something you can call, you can always call me let's let's keep each other accountable and so it becomes a seven day a week thing you know hey man I just want to let you know uh, I looked at porn today uh, call me back when you get a get time then the next day oh man just want to let you know I struggled I, I, I watched porn again today hey man if you can just pray for me I watched porn again today and so it gets easier just to admit that you're a sinner than it is to actually repent of your sin this is not repentance repentance is not Feeling beaten down because of sin. Maybe you've heard people say, I'm not good. I'm just a dirty, rotten sinner. I'm just a worm in the dust. I never do anything right. Now, in comparison to God, these statements are, for the most part, true. And some of them biblical. But but admitting these things, admitting truth is not repentance. Self-condemnation is not repentance. See, there are some people who will come into a setting like this... A church setting where the word is preached and they will, they feel like it's their Christian duty to sit for an hour, hear somebody condemn them, feel really bad about what they're doing and then leave and keep on living the same way. And they think that is their religious duty. Coming to church means feeling bad, feeling condemned, admitting I'm a sinner, I'm no good, I get you, okay, forgive me, and go about their way. And that's not repentance. That, there's, no, there's no change Biblical repentance is not a fear of punishment. This is a big one. You may have heard people say, I don't lie because liars go to hell. We even have a song about it. Liars go to hell, whatever. Just because you're scared of being punished doesn't mean there's been a change of heart, okay? I, I, can, I can train a dog to be scared when I roll up a newspaper, okay? Dogs can learn that. So being scared of punishment isn't repentance because then you could say, well, if there's no punishment, I'm going to live however I want to. So that's not repentance. And like I said, animals can be trained to do this. There's nothing special about that. And there, there are probably more, but I'll stop with that. Biblical repentance is this. I'm going to define it and then I'm going to kind of give us, kind of unpack it a little bit. Biblical repentance is... Turning from sin back to worshiping God with all of your being. Turning from sin, or you could just shorten it. Turning from sin to worshiping God. Turning from sin back to worshiping God with all of your being. That is biblical repentance. Now when we hear that, it seems so simple. Turn from sin, turn to God. Turn away from sin, turn to God. We've, we've, we've probably heard this. I've acted it out up here. Turning from sin... Turn to God. Worshiping God, it seems so easy. And in theory, it really is very simple. But we need to unpack it and understand how it fits. Because for some reason, we, we don't do it. There's a reason why we don't do it. First thing about biblical repentance is it is necessary for salvation. 
It is necessary for salvation. See, if biblical repentance is a turning from sin and turning to God, you can't be saved without turning from your sin. You'll never meet a person in real life. You'll never read about a person in scripture or in history books who, is a, who was a true believer and a follower of Jesus who had not turned from their sin and turned to God and lived a different lifestyle. It cannot happen. And, and, I, and I maybe should clarify, this is a lifelong turning, not temporal. Okay, anybody can morally adjust themselves for a time. You know, I used to go to school eight hours a day and I could sit and be good for a few of those classes. But I didn't want to. I would even get in trouble because sometimes I broke the rules. I could adjust my behavior because I didn't want to get in trouble. But that's So this is a lifelong turning and it's necessary for salvation. I'll give you a couple of scriptures. Um, Acts 3.19 says, Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and receive the holy the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 17.30, at the times of ignorance, God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. If there's not been a time in your life when you've turned away from a sinful lifestyle and turned to worshiping God with everything that you are, you're not a Christian. It doesn't work that way. You don't get to go back and forth and flip-flop. Now, that doesn't mean you don't sin anymore, but it means you want to get away from it. You don't like it. You want to live a different way. Or, if you've made some moral adjustments for a time in years past, but now you're back to the same old thing, that's not repentance. And your thought of salvation is is false. So, repentance, true biblical repentance, is necessary for salvation. You cannot be a Christian and continue in your sin. We can't get that confused with sinning. I sin every day. But I don't like to. I don't want to. I want to get away from it. When I do, I I, I, I repent. I turn away. I don't need that. I don't want that. I'm not a slave to that. The second thing about repentance we must understand, and this is probably the characteristic that is most overlooked and most people don't even know it, is that repentance, biblical repentance is a gift. Biblical repentance is a gift. Acts 11.18 says this, When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles has God also granted repentance that leads to life. God granted repentance to the Gentiles. And that leads to life. Romans 2.4 Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God's kindness, God's initiative leads us to repentance. 2 Timothy 2.25 Correcting His opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. God grants repentance. He gives it as a gift. This is not something we just muster up in ourselves. That's the reason it's so hard is because I can't just say, well, I'm ready to turn from my sin now. God has to gift it to you. He gives it to you. They glorified God because He granted repentance to the Gentiles. Only God gets glory for salvation. So if repentance fits in salvation, then we must glorify God and He must get all the glory for it. So... If we truly believe the words of Scripture that our minds are blinded by sin and that we are in bondage to sin, 
And that we cannot please God without His Spirit ushering in this repentance and leading us to repentance inside of us. Then we must also agree that the Lord must work in us everything that brings about biblical repentance. It's all God. Anybody that comes to me and says, Hey man, you'd be proud of me this week. I turned from my sin. I'd say, no, you didn't. It sounds to me like you've got a self-righteousness issue. The glory goes to God. If you've turned from your sin, if you're a believer right now, the glory goes to God. The Lord must shine the light in us. The Lord must quicken our dead hearts. The Lord must take out the heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh so that we can see Jesus as infinitely beautiful. And in turn, because we see Jesus as infinitely beautiful and precious, then we begin to see our sin as infinitely horrific and terrible. And so we, we see that offense. And then and only then can we turn away from our sin to worship God. So repentance is a gift. The problem with us humans is that we want things like, we want God on our side. I want to be on, I want, I want, I want to be on the God team. I want to have the God card. I want spirituality and enlightenment. I want to be at times lifted out of this world and I want to have this spiritual, emotional feeling. I want to have blessings in my life and good things and, and happiness and health and prosperity. I want to go to heaven when I die, not hell. We want all these things. They're logical desires. The thing is, we want our sin too. I want all these things. I want to be on God's team, but I want to keep my sin too. I want to keep living the same way I've always lived and it will not work. It cannot happen. It's not possible. You must turn from your sin and turn to God and worship God with all of your being. See, our sin blinds us to the true nature of repentance. Because all those things I said repentance is not, we think those are repentance. So I think, well, I'll hold on to my sin, but I'll just, I'll just stay confessed up. I'll just confess my sins and ask God to forgive me every day. And I can still do it every day and still be a Christian. Wrong. Because you've not turned away from it. You've not turned your back to it. See, we want all these things and we can't, we can't turn on our own. And the truth is, we really don't want to. We say we want to. We say we want God on our side. We say we want spirituality and enlightenment. We say we want blessings. We say we want to go to heaven. But really, we don't want those things more than we want our sin. We simply love our sin more than we love Jesus. Now, we wouldn't say that. I would never say that with my mouth. I love my sin more than I love Jesus. I would never say that because it sounds preposterous. It sounds heretical. But the thing is, our, our actions prove our tongues wrong every time, every day. We live this way. Now remember, when we talk about sin, it's not just sinful behavior like lying, stealing, cheating, and murdering, and raping, and those things. It's also these idols and sinful desires in our hearts. See, the heart is always the biggest issue. That's why I say moral change, like I can just harness myself for a time. That's not repentance because your heart still wants it. It's just like, it's like anybody who smokes a cigarette, if I said, hey, I'll give you a million dollars if you don't smoke a cigarette for 24 hours, anybody's going to say, deal, let's do it. Anybody would say that. Do they still want a cigarette? Probably. After they get that million dollars, they're going to go back to it. More than likely, because the deal's up. We can harness our, our actions for a time. I could do almost anything for a short amount of time for the right 
bargain, but it's not a true change. I still want what I'm doing. So it's not just actions. It's a, it's a heart issue. The heart of stone that we are born with, that is dead in sin, is incapable of turning to Christ on its own. Dead things don't do things. I don't know if you've ever seen anything that's dead, but dead things don't do things. So, God-gifted biblical repentance is a constant, everyday turning of your back to, the, to these things and turning to worship God because you see that God is infinitely more valuable and supremely more valuable than any temporal satisfaction I can gain, anything. God must be, if you're, if you're going to be a part of the kingdom of heaven, God must be more glorious and more beautiful to us, more desirable to us than any sin or any pleasure that it might bring. Like I said, anybody can harness their actions for a time, but only a changed heart will produce the fruit that pleases God. So John is preaching to Jews, God's chosen people. They weren't ignorant of the law. They weren't ignorant of the sacrificial system. They weren't ignorant of what what God required of them. They did all these things throughout this intertestamental period, this 400 years. They were still making sacrifices, doing the thing. They performed this religious duty out of duty, these things, just because that's what God told them to do, but their hearts were not changed. They weren't doing it because out of of gratitude towards God. They were doing it because that was just what they were supposed to do. And God had warned them them time after time in the Old Testament, I want your heart. I want your heart. If you don't turn your heart towards me, you're going to be punished because I want your heart. Because God requires a change of heart. Inheritance in the kingdom of heaven requires a change of heart that produces God-honoring actions. So John says, repent. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is important. In the Gospels, the phrases kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God are used pretty much interchangeably. For all practical reasons, we can say they're the same thing. So when John begins to preach that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, his Jewish listeners know what's happening. Sort of. They got a picture in their mind of what this means that God's kingdom is coming or the or kingdom of heaven is coming. Heaven is the dwelling place of God. And so for the kingdom of heaven to come or be at hand, it means it's not going to be long for God's reign, the, the reign of Yahweh, to be established on earth. So this means God reigns universally over all things, his kingdom. His, he's the king who will protect and care for his people as a good king would. He's a king who will set all things right that are wrong as any good king would. And so the Jews had been awaiting this revelation of the kingdom of heaven for many years. And so now John's preaching that it's going to come. Everything that they had promised or that they had been promised through Abraham and the covenants through Abraham and all the patriarchs were encapsulated in this idea that the kingdom of heaven is coming. It's going to be coming. And so they're they're all waiting on this. It wasn't a new idea for them. And so John comes and says, hey, it's it's not going to be long now. So you better get ready. Repent. Turn from your sin. And so from that we can gather that the reign of Yahweh on earth requires repentance and submission to His rule. If God is king over all things in the universe everything and he has complete and total reign then it would be very detrimental to my health to be opposed to that king 
in any way. So repentance meant turning away from any idols of my heart and in my life and turning and submitting to the true king of of the universe and worshiping him as true king. If God is sovereign over all things and he cares for his people, then it would be eternally beneficial to me to submit to his authority and come under his wing of care and protection. Right? I mean, if he's the perfect king and he's going to care for his people, I want to be cared for. I want to be under that submission. If God is coming to redeem and restore all things, to make all the things that are bad be gone and all the things that are good flourish, then to remain in my sin means that I'm setting myself in opposition to the king who will absolutely not tolerate any sin, any rebellion. So why would I hold on to that knowing that the king is coming who is going to banish all sin and evil? So that would be, once again, detrimental to my eternal soul. So in other words, the coming of the reign of Yahweh is of such a nature that you do not want to be in your current state when it gets here. So repent. Repent. Turn from your sin and worship God because God's kingdom is coming. And when He rules and reigns, you want to be on His side. And so we'll see throughout Matthew's gospel that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is a major focus of the teachings of Jesus. He's trying to help these people grasp what the kingdom of heaven is going to be like. So if we're to appropriately approach this topic and this gospel, then we must have repentant hearts. We must repent. We must turn from our sin. We must submit to the rule of Christ in our hearts. Because when we submit, this shows the kingship of Christ. And it shows that 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 reign is the true desire of our hearts. I want Jesus to be Lord over everything more than I want my sin. Because this is what we do. We sin. or, Or the idea of sin or an evil against not sin and good, we want to scoot up as close to that line of evil and sin as we can, but say, but but I didn't cross it. I didn't cross it. Who says I can't do that? So this is what we want to do rather than say, hey, Jesus is, 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 is his boss. He's king. I want to submit to him. Whatever he says goes. Even if I think it's kind of what he meant by that, I'm going to do it because he's king. I don't want to be in opposition to him at all, but we, we want to hold on to our sin and this simply will not work. So we need to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this is the same message that's been preached since the the coming of John and Jesus and his disciples. So in verse 5, it says, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So John preaches, people begin to respond. His sermon was clear enough That people said, that's me. I don't want to be in opposition to God. And so they begin to be baptized, confess their sin. And so this this repentance was evidenced by a public confession of sin, which we've said is not repentance, but it was just a confession. It It was like they were saying, I want to turn from my sin, and my sin is this. And they would say, these are all the things I'm doing. I'm turning from it. And then... It was also evidenced by baptism, which we'll look at more next week. Baptism is simply an outward symbol of an inward change. It's just signifying what has happened in your life. So when John preached this super simple message, people responded. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I see no reason to believe that anything has changed. I don't know why it would have. And so 
My call today, my exhortation, my encouragement is this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's closer now than it's ever been. Jesus ushered it in. He inaugurated it. One day he's going to come back and consummate it. He's going to be over everything. We don't know when it's going to be. It could be when we get done. I don't know. We, it, we're closer now than we've ever been. And so repent. And I, I, I beg you, I would plead if there's people here who haven't, turn from their sin to do that. Turn from your sin. Worship the living God. Don't remain in opposition to His throne. Nobody wants to be on that team, the losing team. Don't set yourself in rebellion against the Lord of hosts who absolutely will vanquish sin and evil and who will destroy it and He will win. There's no question. If you don't believe me, turn to the back of the book. It's already done. He will win. Why would you want to be on the losing team? So repent and turn away from your sin and worship God. See, it's so easy for us to be enticed. Remember last week we talked about being fans of Jesus. We love being fans of Jesus as He is the prophet of God. Because He taught good things. He spoke the Word of God. He, he lived a, a good life. And so we love that. Man, I love Jesus, man. He was cool to everybody. I love Jesus as prophet. We're also fans of Jesus as priest. Because if I tell you, you are a sinner and Jesus died to pay for that sin... Sounds like a good deal. So we love that idea that Jesus would pay for my sin. And so we love and we are big fans of Jesus as our high priest. But my encouragement is that you would receive Jesus as prophet, yes. Priest, yes. But also king. That means you submit to his authority. That he rules, he reigns. His word goes. What he says goes. His he, as the Word of God, will stand forever. See, submitting to Jesus as King is completely unnatural to us as humans. We don't naturally do this. But God, if you would ask Him, will soften your heart and enable you to receive Jesus. He will enable that change. So in closing, submit to His reign. Submit to Jesus and His reign. Obey His Word. Come under His wing of protection. Join the victorious army. Be changed into a new creation that will stand with Christ forever when all evil is destroyed. Repent and worship God. Let's pray.